0: Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today, I actually have one of my good friends who always, always, always reaches out to me for stories. But as I laugh and joke with him, I say, today, the rabbit has the gun. I got my good friend from Politico, Mark Caputo, joining us for today's show. It's It's one of those wonky, good election. You know, we dig in the weeds on different demographics type of shows. So I'm really glad that he joined us today. But before I get to our conversation, I wanted to talk about The Democratic firing squad is still raging around. What else but defunding the police? In case you missed it, in an interview with Peter Hamby on Good Luck America, the president created fires across Twitter. And let me just be clear, my president, 44, uh, when he described defund the police as, quote, snappy slogan. And people predictably lost their shit. So let's listen to the president's entire quote, not just what we want to hear
1: on Twitter. When you were a community organizer, a lot of the folks in the community you were dealing with really just cared about modest change. They wanted to do better for their families. Again, if you're a young activist today and you believe really passionately in a slogan like defund the police, what is your advice to that activist, also knowing that a lot of politicians won't go near that phrase?
2: It's interesting. We take for granted, if you want people to buy your sneakers, that you're going to market it to your audience. If a musician drops a record. There's gonna try to reach certain audiences speaking to folks where they are. It's no different in terms of ideas. If you believe, as, as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly, I guess you can use a snappy slogan like, defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually gonna get the changes you want done. But if you instead say, let's reform the police department so that everybody's being treated fairly, You know, divert young people from getting into crime. And if there's a homeless guy, can maybe we send a mental health worker there instead of an armed unit that could end up resulting in a tragedy? Suddenly, a whole bunch of folks who might not otherwise listen to you are listening to you. So the key is deciding, do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree with? And if you want to get something done in a democracy, in a country as big and diverse as ours, then you've got to be able to meet people where they are and play a, a game of addition and not subtraction.
0: So the president makes a simple statement here, and that's that the way we frame things affect how people interpret them. You can be sympathetic to the aims of Defund, but still recognize that it's not politically popular and that it's too easily weaponized against Democratic candidates. Now, we can argue about why the phrase can be so easily weaponized and how campaigns can respond. But the fact remains that it's not a popular phrase and I actually say it sucks. And if the phrase is used to help elect people who we know may oppose any police reform in any matter, then we lose. So if we want meaningful reform of policing in this country, we should probably start by talking about it in ways that attract support for it. The public polling on defund is also clear. For example, in June, Politico and Morning Consult survey asked about redirecting funding for police departments in your local communities to support community development programs. The idea outpolled defund the police by a net 31 points. An Economist YouGov survey asked about Gradually redirecting police funding toward increasing the number of social workers, drug counselors, and mental health experts responsible for responding to nonviolent emergencies. That's a hell of a poll question. That formulation outpolled defund the police by 37 points. What does that mean? That people don't understand what defund actually means. They think it's about abolition. But the reforms that defund would bring about are actually popular. So more talk about the reforms and let's use of a phrase that's radioactive. That's the president's point, and there's ample evidence to support it. I've said here before that some Democrats, though, are using defund as an excuse for bad campaigns and record Republican turnout this cycle to explain away tight races that they were probably going to lose anyway. It's a way for them to escape accountability for a broken campaign playbook. I stand by that. And I had a whole episode with Tom Bonnier where it was clear that there's no evidence in any polling or from actual voter data, this cycle that defund in and of itself was a determining factor for how people voted and why candidates lost. But that doesn't mean that the phrase itself is a winner politically. And if we're honest, especially in light of all the public polling on this issue, it pushes away just as much, if not more people than it attracts. That's not how you build coalitions or pass legislation. And a point that the president did make that I want to make sure we don't forget is he asked the question I think we all have to ask. Do you want to get something done or do you want to feel good? Police violence in this country is a problem we have to fix, but we don't get to fix it if we lose elections. And that's that on that. Now on to my good friend and my new show with Mark Caputa.
3: This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere, get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with $25,000 Tons of other multi care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
0: Welcome to the Bukari Sellers Podcast. Today we have one of the best journals uh, around. An intrepid Ooh. journalist. Is that the word that they use? Intrepid? Is that a w- good word to I use? I guess, yeah. I yeah. you can call
1: me intrepid. I mean, we all got
0: fears. Like, uh, I don't want to be eaten by a shark. Right? Let's well, my- and well, you're actually in the wrong state. Uh, Florida, man, that type of stuff happens down there. But I want to welcome to the show my good friend from uh, Politico. Mark Caputo, welcome and thank you for spending some time. I know this is a busy time for you tracking down leads and everything else, but thank you for joining the Bukhari Sellers podcast, my brother.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, no, uh, though I'm based in Florida and I, I cover both Florida and national politics right now, I'm, I'm, I'm assigned to cover Georgia, which is kind of kind of interesting because you know, I lived in Tallahassee so many years, so close to Georgia. And all of a sudden I'm talking to Republicans in Georgia and Democrats to a degree. And I'm like, you know, Florida used to be the state with the razor thin elections margins and total political dysfunction. And now I'm looking at Georgia it's like we can't hold a candle.
0: <laughs> that's what it looks like. in Florida, well, so Southern Georgia was always just North Florida, anyway. I mean, that's what we call right, it.
1: or vice versa, right? Yeah. Vice versa. Like, uh, <laughs> my, my, uh, yeah, my, yeah, my favorite Georgia town is, is Cairo, although it's spelled Cairo, and the um, the high school there was called the Syrup Makers because Cairo sounded like Cairo syrup making. Or syrup, oh my so. goodness!
0: My favorite Georgia city is Waycross, Georgia. Because they say Way cross Georgia is Way Cross Georgia. <laughs> I'm here all week. So I, I usually start this show by asking my guests to walk me through the arc of their career. So walk me through your first beat at the Miami Herald to your beat now with Politico.
1: I started off as a small town reporter. I grew up in Key West, of all places, and I didn't get a journalism degree. And so um, I had no job when I graduated in 1995 and wound up working. Uh, First, I wrote a walking guide to Key West and then started freelancing for the local paper, got hired covering the crime beat in Key West. My job used to be to go down to the police station and find the most absurd arrests that happened and report them and also cover the dysfunction of law enforcement down there. I then moved to the Naples Daily News, just kind of north of Key West, but a world away. I moved out to Arizona for a year and a half at the Mesa Tribune. I came back, worked for the Palm Beach Post, covered the county, uh, Palm Beach County, and that was the 2000 election recount. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm one of the few people who actually intentionally voted for Pat Buchanan, uh, just full disclosure, and uh, you know, and, and, and that famed Butterfly Ballot. Then got hired by the Herald to cover the legislature and state capital uh, from 2003 to 2011, became Miami Herald's political writer based in Miami. And then I left the Herald in February of 2015 and began working for Politico at that point, kind of helped launched Politico's uh, Politico Florida operation. We now have a, a bureau of five people based in Tallahassee. And I have been covering the state and now national politics for Politico since then. So
0: for people who may not read Politico, I don't know who those people are. But for those who may not read Politico, talk about your work with Politico's Florida playbook. What is that?
1: Well, I, I don't do a Florida playbook anymore, thank God. But you know, Politico's, Politico has a bunch of different kind of uh, silos for uh, reporting and kind of beats. And one of the things we have are our playbooks. The main playbook is the playbook that you know people who care about politics want to read about, which is the, the goings-on of Washington and national politics every day, delivered to your doorstep. And to branch out into other states, we began doing it here in Florida, Florida being its own nation and kind of a reflection of the nation, or at least we more mm-hmm. used to be. Uh, until this last election week,
0: I know you're not even a swing state anymore. We just go put right. You I know we're now a battleground, <laughs> a lowly battleground.
1: Uh, that was just kind of a collection, of not only the daily headlines of what to expect out of Florida, as well as a little bit of analysis. Like, here's what the state means. Here's what's happening, and that's delivered uh, daily uh your email box if you sign up. Uh, Politico Florida Playbook. You can Google it and check it out. I hope I get. It cut up the revenue uh, for plugging it here,
0: but maybe not. I, I, doubt, I doubt you will. But thank you for, for running that mid, mid-interview mid ad right there. We have them anyway. Um, you were one of Politico's reporters that covered the Biden campaign. So I wanted to talk to you about the campaign as we close the chapter on this election cycle. He ignored the Twitter noise and kept progressives at bay. He embraced the center-left agenda. And while he made overtures to progressives in the general election, it was clear that that wing of the party would have some, albeit limited, influence on a Biden administration. Do you think that future Democratic presidential candidates will be able to run like this? Or was 2020 and the Biden-Trump dynamic a unique one that we can leave in 2020?
1: Boy, I'm going to really be, I'm, I'm just going to answer it both ways. Like, I, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, but I think every unique- Hell, hell, hell of an answer there. Hell yeah, of an answer. Yeah, I, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I should be better at interviewing <laughs> <laughs> uh I've done enough of them but every presidential election is unique and certainly in in the from the Bush era on you're talking about the, the 2000 presidential election the unique qualities of the candidates really kind of shine forth albeit uh, you know probably in the modern era that's been the case so you know if you in the 2024 election is probably going to look nothing like the 2020 election we are a country that more and more looks at the executive as being kind of more powerful and certainly more symbolic than I think even the framers of the Constitution had envisioned. So, I don't think that playbook could be run again, including by Joe Biden. You know, Joe Biden had a very unique uh, set of circumstances here, namely that he was running against Donald Trump, who mm-hmm. you know probably is the most fascinating politician we've ever seen in our time. Because you know, yeah, he was a politician, but he still kind of isn't, and. Um, He was both so loved and so hated. And then you have the overlay of the pandemic on top of it. But as far as Biden's campaign, I've frequently explained to people that they have to remember that in the modern era, presidential campaigns are marketing campaigns. These campaigns sell a candidate the same way that Crest sells toothpaste, Coca-Cola sells soda, or that Oldsmobile sells a car. And in that respect, Joe Biden was very much kind of an Oldsmobile. And he was a brand that people knew. The thing is, is, that car has a lot of miles on it. And the campaign was very expert in taking that product, Biden, with that good brand, and placing it in a desirable way before voters so that they're like, hey, you know, that's a dependable car. And the current car I'm driving, the sports car of Donald Trump, you know, it might veer off the road or the engine might explode, right? Might throw a rod. Uh, you know, I want something kind of dependable. And so they were kind of good at at marketing Biden, putting him out there just long enough so people didn't really check the odometer and drive, test drive the car for too long. Because, you know, when I first started covering the Biden campaign, before it was technically a campaign in in February, March of 2019, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was, uh, and then I saw him on the stump for his initial announcement. I was like, whoa, this is not, you know. This is not the same guy that I remember seeing uh, and speaking to. I, I remember interviewing him in 2012. Uh, that he was before. I mean, the reality is that Joe Biden had lost a step. He has lost a step, and they were very good at putting him in advantageous situations. So but the reality is, is especially in those early primary and caucus states, you got to place the candidate on the stump. You got to place him before voters. One of the things that always mystified me about the Biden campaign is that he's so terrible at giving speeches, generally speaking, some of them are good, but he's so expert one-on-one and you would see at these these events, like he'd hold these these rallies. I mean, you can call them rallies, but they didn't have a lot of energy to them. And the the speeches were flat and he usually kind of stammered through his lines and just wasn't very good. But then afterward, he would have these rope line events where people would individually come up to him and pardon the Catholic in me. It would just remind me of kind of almost the way a priest would meet with his parishioners. I mean, people would spill their life story out to, to them. I remember in New Hampshire, this vet, a, a Vietnam vet came up just to talk to him. And you could tell the guy just wanted a hug. And Joe Biden loves hugging, like gave the guy a hug. The guy had lost a son. And it's just as Joe Biden had. So he's kind of this fascinating character to kind of witness on the stand and or on the, the campaign trail and stump. And then COVID happened. And the pandemic and the opportunities that the pandemic presented kind of perfectly overlapped with the campaign's technique or its kind of fundamental tactics of don't put the candidate out there long. Suddenly Biden was in his basement and he kind of had to be, it was the safe thing to do. And in the end, it wound up being kind of a perfect storm for him because it played to his strengths and it also just made the 2020 election a referendum on Trump, who just proceeded to kind of go out there and make so many wrong moves with the pandemic. Uh, Let me ask
0: you a question. If Donald Trump wears a mask, does he is he president of the United States for a second term?
1: I think if if Donald Trump had just done kind of the basic things of being a commander in chief, not engaging in his sense of of media hating conspiracy theory stoking and told people, hey, look, this thing is coming. It's bad. It's going to hurt. We need to buckle down. We need to wear masks. We need to take this seriously. We're going to dump a bunch of money into vaccines. We're going to ramp it up. Bear with me. I'm your leader. Oh, yeah. I think I think he would have destroyed anyone. Uh, you know, Just as an aside, in Florida, one of the things that we saw in 2004 and 2005, we had a very active hurricane season. Eight hurricanes damaged the state in the span of 13 months. And Jeb Bush really showed away a commander-in-chief, he was the governor at the time, would get out there, give these daily briefings, make people feel good. One of the things you always do as a leader in crisis is you tell people, look, we're resilient. We're going to get through this together. You give them a sense of purpose and hope. And it really worked. You know, Jeb really helped deliver Florida to his brother, George Bush, for his re-election in 2004. And then Rick Scott, uh, Charlie Crist, who was in between them, kind of aped that. And, you know, Ron DeSantis isn't doing it as much. He hasn't had sort of the same level of crisis, albeit the way he's handled the pandemic is a whole other story. But that style of leadership really pays off. And and Trump didn't engage in it at all. It's just kind of not his personality. And Trump also has a a tendency to surround himself with advisors who, in the end, kind of feed some of his worst instincts and don't kind of keep him on task. And so I think that certainly I think the pandemic cost Donald Trump uh, more than anything else.
0: Let me ask you this question, Mark. Does and I was a Kamala Harris supporter, but I've come to the belief and realization that the only one of the 37,000 candidates we had who were running for president who could beat Donald Trump was Joe Biden. It, it, do you believe from your journalistic perch that that to be true as well?
1: Yeah, I, I had. And it's this weird, once again, a kind of a contradiction is that Biden was, you know, I mean, as a candidate, just not a very good candidate as a campaign, very good campaign. Yet he had these various qualities from his brand, probably to his race as well, his gender, and his temperament, and his messaging is kind of just fundamental, unite the soul of the country message that just made him the right guy for the right time. I mean, I I think, I I probably speak for a lot of people, like, this election was really close. You know, I mean, what, you have like five states that are basically inside the air margin? I hear you about being close, but
0: if you were to tell me at the beginning that we would flip Arizona and Georgia, I probably would have thought you were crazy. I, I didn't see, I didn't see though. I mean, I saw Arizona, maybe Georgia. I thought we were still a few, maybe a decade away.
1: I'm still processing like, what? Like <laughs> Georgia went blue, but Florida went red? Like, Yeah,
0: that's just, wow. I'm me still ask you trying this. to figure it out. <laughs> One of the things I hope we leave in 2020 is the Iowa caucus and the order of the states in the Democratic primary. Do you think we finally change the order of the states in 2024? You think this is, kind of set in stone until my kids get old?
1: I don't know, but we probably should. There's certainly been a racial awakening in Democratic Party. Yeah. And I think Iowa has a great function to play because the voters there are very engaged. They're very smart. They're used to candidates and they kick the tires. They use that metaphor again for the rest of the nation. But at the same time, it's just so old and white. And at least for the Democratic Party, it doesn't look like a party.
0: Yeah. That's true. Let's assume that President-elect Biden is a one-term and President Trump doesn't run in 2024. Handicap, give me your top three Democrat and Republican primary fields for me. What are you looking for? I know people are already talking about it.
1: I wish you had told me that ahead of time so I could prepare. I am <laughs> gobsmacked by that idea. Uh, so I'm buying time as- As, as you as, think I, through I, it? Across. Yeah. I mean, Kamala Harris obviously just kind of rises to the top. I wonder if AOC kind of makes it uh, you know, across the finish line. Um, on the Republican side, certainly Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio from Florida might surface again. I mean, he hasn't denied Which Marco
0: Rubio, Marco Rubio's turned into like four different people over the past four or five years.
1: Yeah. Whichever Marco <laughs> Rubio decides to show up. I mean, the same Marco Rubio who, who has kind of spent his life thinking about running for president, like he's going to show, uh, we have a unique thing here in Florida where Ron Santos might do it and Rick Scott might do it. So you might actually have like three Republicans from the same state, all kind of vying for the same space, just like, we had in 2016 of uh, Jeb versus um, Rubia, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Donald Trump came in and just leaned everybody's clock. So uh, that would be on the, the Republican side. Uh, you know, I think jo- the interesting thing that we've seen now is in the past, it used to be, oh, we don't want career politicians and the like, but the reality is if you want to run for office and you're not Donald Trump, you probably want to be in the Senate or you probably want to be, in a, go- want to be a, a governor. Yeah. I would imagine Bernie Sanders would be too old by then, uh, but who knows? and I think AOC is just like a fascinating character
0: and I'm I, interested to see how she plays down south. I'm not sure the politics and the familiarity and the trust that you know a lot of people ran into that trust thing when it came to black voters particularly in the south. So that's going to be interesting because you know the right. Iowa was a test but then you get the South Carolina and Super Tuesday mm-hmm. and that just gets to be I think Kamala has a good chance on the on the Republican side though. If this is if Joe Biden doesn't run and if Donald Trump doesn't run on the Republican side, I think that Matty Gates is going to run for president of the United States, Tom Cotton. Um, and I think they kind of fill the same lane. And I think you still have Ted Cruz out there. Mm-hmm. But I think that if the election, if the primary was held today, I would say that Nikki Haley would win and it probably wouldn't be that close.
1: Uh, that would be interesting, <laughs> um, especially because of South Carolina's position in the primary calendar, if that holds. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah, Nikki Haley winds up being the nominee for president on the Republican side. Uh, you know, there's a lot of history to be made there. One of the interesting things that you see with the Republican Party is that they do struggle with how do I say this delicately? They do struggle with race. There are too many racists in the Republican Party. But if you are a Black Republican, they embrace you. And I think in the case of Nikki Haley, you know, if you're an Indian American a Republican, yeah. they're going to <laughs> embrace you. So. There is this kind of dichotomy that you see there, but you know Donald Trump also, as you know, helped almost paradoxically unlock the Republican ability to appeal to more voters of color. Uh, and I think the way he did that is he kind of accelerated the schism or the divide between the, the kind of the working class sensibilities, which are lean more Republican now, and you know the kind of hyper educated college educated, which is more of a phenomenon of the Democratic Party. But yeah, I think Nikki Haley would certainly be formidable. I'm always very leery of, of just thinking even more than two years out. You know, oh yeah, my head's kind of on Georgia. I'm just starting to think like, okay, who is it going to be a Kemp Collins race in Georgia? Is Donald Trump going to be campaigning actively against Kemp there on Collins' path? Thinking four years from then, you know, is uh, it's you it's- can have
0: a scenario like uh, Jeff Sessions recently in in Alabama where. Uh, Trump just comes in and, and clings the clock of of the pseudo incumbent in that race.
1: Right. I I uh, I mean, all indications and in talking to Trump's people and in talking to as many Georgia Republicans as I have is, you know, Kemp's not a dead man walking, but he's 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 the walking wounded. And he's going to have a lot of makeup to do in the next two years uh, to prevent what could be a really really tough primary. And I think Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, he might be dead man. walking.
0: Let's talk Florida for a second, something that you're an expert of. Non-Floridians often see uh, the results in Florida and are baffled by how close Florida is every cycle. But non-Floridians don't always appreciate how massive and diverse the state is and why it's such a tough state to easily characterize. You've got Alabama in the panhandle, Disney in Central Florida, and Latin America in South Florida. Walk our listeners through what makes Florida such a unique political animal.
1: Well, I think you you probably said it pretty well, just taking it Geographically, another way to look at it is kind of we're kind of, you know, all upside down and everywhere else. So, North Florida is the deep south. Uh, Southeast Florida is the northeast, but extreme Southeast Florida, Miami Dade County, is the north capital of Latin America. Southwest Florida (laughs) is the Midwest, and kind of uh, temperamentally and kind of by settlement. And then the central Florida corridor through, you know, Tampa through Orlando and up the I-4 corridor. And that's kind of the fulcrum, that kind of uh, that big mungy middle. It's kind of like everywhere USA. So you, you combine those different elements together and you get a, a real reflection of the nation. We have 10 major media markets, which makes it incredibly expensive to expensive. campaign here. Uh, it costs about $3 million a week to run a good saturation TV ad campaign. So you're going to burn a lot of money. Uh, 63%, 62% of our voters by registration are white. Uh, 17% are Hispanic, uh, 13% are Black, and then you're starting to see an increase in Asian American voters and mixed race and other race voters. And the dynamics of the state just keep changing. We have, at one point, we had thousands of people from Puerto Rico a week, and this is before Hurricane Maria, moving to the state. And all of a sudden, Florida now has more Puerto Ricans than New York. Uh, We also have a larger population of registered Puerto Rican voters, or better said, uh, voter eligible Puerto Ricans than we do the Cuban Americans. Nevertheless, Cuban Americans have just astonishingly high turnout rates, and they have become far more Republican again under Trump than before. And that was an interesting dynamic. Is that, that an age? Population.
0: Is that an age dynamic there?
1: Oh, that's what's kind of interesting is there's always age, right? Like, you know, younger people tend to vote Democrat, older people tend to vote Republican. You certainly see that with Cuban Americans. But with the Cuban-American vote, so to speak, is the, you had, basically, we had like two dividing lines, 1959, which is when the Cuban Revolution happens, uh, Castro comes to power, and all of a sudden, an entire society in Havana and in Cuba picks up and moves to one location, Miami. I mean, it's over a period of years. But it, it makes the Cuban population the most unique immigrant group we've ever seen, because all of a sudden in Miami and in Florida, you had doctors and lawyers and politicians and engineers and university professors who came over en masse. Normally, you don't have kind of the elite educated uh, strata of a society and mass pick up and move to one location. And they began amassing a tremendous amount of political power, thanks partly to Jeb Bush and Governor Reagan in 1980. So, 1980 is also an important year after 1959 because of two things. One, the Mariel boatlift.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Castro opens his doors. He's like, "Oh, you guys are complaining about human rights, and there's a problem here. You know what? You can go to the United States." At the same time, he opens his sanatoriums and he kicks everybody out, uh, and it created this kind of massive influx of uh, new Cuban Americans who were not of like kind of the same uh, social and economic uh, strata and status as uh, the the prior ones. And the Cuban-Americans who came between 1959 and 1980 are Republican conservative leaning. That's partly because of Reagan. He coined the the phrase that Hispanics are Republicans, they just don't know it yet. Uh, After 1980, the arrivals tended to be much more Democratic voting. Then something interesting. Uh, We've noticed that since 2010, this is a Florida International University study, had found that Cuban-Americans who came over you know, so much later or so much more recently, are trending more Republican again. That's mm. partly a Donald Trump phenomenon, but that's also a phenomenon of the fact that the American community here was very settled and very established. And the way to have kind of status and a political power here, if you're Cuban American, is to be with the Republican Party. And they really turned it on this last election.
0: What do Democrats get wrong about, quote, Latino voters? And is there a such thing as the Latino vote at all?
1: right I think the number one thing that they got wrong in this election so to speak you now don't get me wrong the uh, Donald Trump still lost the Hispanic votes so of course the first thing that Democrats like to talk about and they're right about this is that there's not a Latino vote American vote Venezuelan I'm talking just in Florida right uh, Colombian American uh, Nicaraguan those uh, immigrants and those people who have uh, family roots in those different countries tend to be much more, Receptive to an anti-socialism message because they all hail from countries that had either leftist right. dictatorships right. or, in the case of Colombia with uh had encountered kind of uh, extreme violent uh, leftism. Uh, so you also have Puerto Ricans, oh, you know, who are who have uh, a, kind of a more liberal bent. And then there's Mexican Americans. Our Mexican American population in Florida is growing, uh, but it's uh, it's not as big and sizable, say, like in California or in Arizona or Texas. Yeah. Right. Or Texas. But what Democrats I think got most wrong in this election, I wrote a story about this two weeks ago to plug that, is I looked at the hundred Hispanic majority counties in the United States, Florida, the United States, Hispanic majority. Donald Trump improved his margins in 78 of 100 of them. In the exit polls, which I know people like to trash, he improved his margins in every major battleground state and every major state among Hispanic voters. The question is why? Well, if you look at the census, Uh, Latinos, Hispanics are among the least likely to get a college degree. And the number one signifier of being working class is not having a college degree, is there is a strong working class sensibility and a pro-patriotism sensibility in Latinos. And Trump started to really unlock that nature of white. Democrats, while they've been kind of messaging to people saying immigration, 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 you know, you find a lot of second generation Mexican-Americans, like even in Arizona. Kind of don't really care about this as much as a lot of woke whites would have you believe.
0: So it's the it's the economy stupid. It's about creating jobs and
1: wealth. Correct. It's about and right. And there's that entrepreneurial spirit. One of the Josh Zaragoza, a Democratic uh, data guy in Phoenix that I talked to, he's of Mexican descent. He had said that uh, he was surprised by his cousins who their grandmother had come over illegally from Mexico. They are in the moving business. And he's like, like, they didn't care about immigration. That was, they didn't care about kids in cages. That wasn't their issue. They liked Donald Trump's style. They liked the entrepreneurial spirit. And they liked that kind of, uh, that sensibility about it. And that's something Democrats totally missed. I think the way that Democrats talk about race and racism, especially the woke white fringe or uh, cohort of the Democratic Party, doesn't understand that a lot of non-whites view a lot of us whites as being racist that's kind of like baked into the cake so it's like okay if everyone's racist which racist do i like the most exactly um and i think some of that calculus they misunderstood but i think the number one thing is that blue collar working class sensibility which is a a major sticking point for the party across the board but you really started to see it with latinos
0: so let's get to 2022 before I let you go. And we have Florida 2022. You've got Governor DeSantis, who was on the ballot, as well as Senator Rubio. I've been very public in my um, trying to find somebody to run against Rubio. But please tell me, will there be formidable opposition in 2022? Are there going to be competitive races? And if you could handicap the Democratic field for both of those individuals?
1: I don't want to handicap the field, but you know, would certainly say that Val Demings, the congresswoman from Orlando, whose profile was elevated by Joe Biden, uh, she's from Orlando. She is former police chief. Uh, she's African American. She, you know, she is going to be a force to be reckoned with if she decides to run. Now, the question is: is Does she decide to run? Well, here's the problem for Democrats: is They lost in 2014, the top of the ticket races. In 2016, uh, they're like, okay, well, that was like a Trump fluke. Who knows? In 2018, when there was a blue wave everywhere else, it rose here, but it was a blue tide that hit a red wall. They didn't win the top of the ticket races there. And then obviously in 2020, what's interesting about 2020, Donald Trump won Florida in 2020 by a little over three percentage points. He won by a bigger margin than Barack Obama did in 2008. Yeah. When you put all these ingredients together, the Democratic Party is just really in a hurt locker. Costs three million dollars a week to advertise on TV to get known. If you have a party that has just kind of struggled to get its voters to the polls or excite its voters, it's just going to be a really, really tough haul for Democrats.
0: What about your AG secretary,
1: Nikki Fried? uh, You know, she could decide to run against DeSantis, but again, I have to say is that despite the national media coverage, or perhaps because of it, Ron DeSantis is going to be a really formidable opponent. One of the paradoxical things is, is Ron DeSantis didn't do the things that you would think you would do if you were a leader in a state that was being racked by coronavirus, tell people to wear a mask, uh, for instance. He was very much in lockstep with Trump here. But DeSantis is Overall, poll numbers fell because independents started to leave him and Democrats started to leave him, but he has become beloved of the Republican base. And so far, Republicans have found that if you can really turn out that Republican base and you can really excite them, your voters come out. For some reason, the Democrats just don't. So it's going to be a tough race. That having been said, Nikki Fried was the only Democrat in 2018 statewide to win an election. I wouldn't want to counter out. Uh, she'd does have a team around her which could use a little more seasoning. But at the same time, Democrats who have been used in all these campaigns have presided over losing campaigns. It's sort of a way too. So my last topic for you today is the Biden
0: transition. Given the pivotal role that black and brown voters played in getting... The president elect elected. Are you surprised at all at how much pressure Black, Latino, and Asian American groups have had to apply to this administration in terms of ensuring diverse cabinets and senior personnel choices? Was that a deep not side? So, yeah. Uh, uh,
1: well, it was, it was the it was the framing of the question, right? I'm I know. So I hate pro- when I hate when you do that to me. <laughs> so, right, right. Have you stopped beating your wife? Uh, I, know. Uh, I think. I think the. Um, I'm not surprised that advocacy groups are advocating. Uh, you know, I, I was I was surprised, for instance, that Simone Sanders, for instance, was a spokesman for Biden from the get-go. And when Biden repeatedly stepped in it over race, and he had himself like, hey, why'd you say all these nice things about segregationists? You know, Simone Sanders, who's an African-American Black woman, you know, she was really an important part of that equation. I was surprised that she, having written a book where she said she would like the podium job as press secretary, that she was essentially passed over for and put in the vice president's office. There's some, some people within Biden's orbit were surprised. by that. I'm kind of surprised. By that. Uh, mm. The Broadly, uh, Joe Biden runs the risk of looking like the stereotype of the white Democrats who turn to the black community for a lot of help. And then they get the help and they get elected. And then suddenly it's like all these white people. But having been said, it's a pretty diverse administration that he's already assembling. And deputies. I think it's diverse, one step away from the top. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's and that kind of speaks to what I was talking about earlier. And I think a lot of these advocacy groups, uh, a lot of you know people who, who care about this, Jim Clyburn, for instance, from South Carolina, I mean, if you can credit one politician for rescuing Joe Biden's flagging presidential campaign during the primary, it's Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, right? And you didn't think on February 29th, I was, I was in South Carolina where Biden said something to the degree of like, you rescued me, Jim, or you saved me, right? Clyburn uh, started to rattle sabers about that. That's someone to listen to. And I, I think he runs, a, he runs the risk of, of really disappointing people. I think a lot of these people have looked at uh, these groups, I should say, have looked at his appointment so far and and realized, like, you know, we just want a little more. We want you to kind of keep good to your promise. So, yeah. you know, if they don't do that, it's more problematic. I do think with with some of the Latino leadership, you know, that, that's, a, that's a more difficult ask for them to make. Uh, Latinos didn't really put Joe Biden in the presidency as much as black voters did. His debt of service uh, to black voters is pretty well known and is pretty easy to document. So that's obviously something that we're all watching, like the NAACP is talking about it more. So I would be surprised if he decides to have a much more white administration than uh, we expect. But, you know, politics, anything can
0: happen. (laughs) Along those lines. Let me um, just shout out some agencies and, and let me know the names you're hearing for those positions. If you can, you can say, Bakari. I oh, skip. OK.
1: Yeah. No, I, I pro- I'll have to pass on that because I, I've been stuck in Georgia. I'm off a of vacation. I haven't been doing transition. Look at that. You don't even see.
0: <laughs> I got to better prepare my guest over here. Um, <laughs> based on your reporting in Georgia, one of my last questions, how do you see the Georgia runoff shaking out? Are they going to be really close? High turnout? Or is nobody coming? Will you have something similar to Alabama? And uh, what year was that? 2018,
1: 2017? Right. right that's, so that's the big question. I've just never seen a state that's as much as, as chaotic as Georgia is, right? Uh, that you have a sitting president who's at war with the Secretary of State of the own Party, who's claiming fraud, and then at the same time wants to turn his base out. Uh, I, I do think that despite what otherwise would depress turnout, Republicans there are so angry when I'm talking. I mean, they are mad. And it's an anger, I think that's probably like, it's like a collective stage of grief that they're in, Mm -hmm. that they both lost the state and that Donald Trump lost the presidency. I think that's going to fuel them like nothing else. In the end, you take out Joe Biden's win in Georgia, Georgia still looks like a pretty red state. So it's advantage Republican especially if you look at just the election results, both Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, the Republican senators, the nominees for Senate in the January 5th runoff, I mean, both of those candidates got 100,000 or more votes than the Democratic challenger who's facing them. It's difficult for Democrats to kind of overcome that. That said, Stacey Abrams is no joke. She knows how to organize. The party feels, the Democratic Party feels as if it's got a win in its back. So, you know, if Democrats have a chance to come up and steal, I shouldn't use that verb, actually. <laughs> yeah, cut it out. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> if Democrats have an opportunity to come up and take a red state or a formerly red state, this is the election to do it. In part because, you know, it's it, these are the holiday season that, yeah. that are going on. It's a January 5th election, and Republicans are still sorting out this concept of like, was the election stolen from us or not? By the way, it was not. It was a legitimate election. There's no data that shows up. Uh, Rather stupidly, and I say this as someone in Florida where there's a lot of absentee ballot voting that happens from Republicans that is crucial. Uh, the Republicans are still cool to absentee ballot voting because they're still associating it with fraud. Democrats have no such concern. And that's an easy way to win an election if you can get enough ballots in people's hands mm-hmm. and just tell them, like, hey, look, just sign the thing and turn it in. Right. So uh, I, you know, I don't want to predict a Republican win because of those different factors.
0: Last question: Your Canes are seven and one, ranked in the top ten, and on their way to a New Year's Day bowl game. How close are the Canes to getting back to their old ways and dominating? This is a self-interested question on my part because I need somebody to step up and challenge Clemson. I
1: hate. Sorry, yeah, no. Unfortunately, like Dabo Swinney is just—he's just recruiting. He's recruiting too well, almost suspiciously well. Thank God for De'Ara King, uh, who came to us from Houston. He's our quarterback. Uh, Hopefully. Because of the COVID rules, he's going to be able to stay, and he'll be a 60-year senior playing. It'll be a second year at UM. He's a phenomenal quarterback. Miami's big problem that they've had for more than a decade now is that you know, South Florida is a fantastic place to recruit uh, skill and speed players, and University of Miami swims in that. But we just don't win in the trenches, and it's very <laughs> difficult to win games if your quarterback is lying on his back. Or if your defense, your defense is gashed for four yards per carry, and until our coaches or the program figures that out, I don't know. But like Dabo Swinney is doing something like
0: he's just carving out the middle of a Bible and putting cash in it and handing it to families.
1: You know, I, I, I did kind of hint that. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> but I'm like those guys are too damn good. <laughs> no, they're, they're oh my goodness, hard. all love
0: Dabo. Not really, all love Dabo. So thank you as so long much. As they
1: beat Alabama, right? That's a-
0: no, no, we don't want them. They, we want them to go 0-12. <laughs>
1: well, I wouldn't mind that. But yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, I think of all things to say, I think Miami's going well, to we play Duke this weekend. Or we're going to play Georgia Tech later. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to wind up in the ACC championship against Clemson, and it's probably going to be another clock cleaning there. Although, no. Hopefully, we can luck out the way the evil uh, Notre Dame uh, team is, and, and, and the, there will be a COVID uh, problem in South Carolina or better said in Clemson. I'm not wishing COVID on anyone, but if they're going to get sick again, they may as well get sick in that game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, my brother. Thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. This has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed asking you the questions as much as I enjoy you asking me them. I've often. enjoyed
1: ducking the questions. To the
0: yeah, you did out. a good job. You bobbed and weaved like the best politicians I know.
1: Thank you,
0: Thank you brother. One last thing before I get out of here, diversity and cabinet picks have gotten a lot of attention lately and rightly so. Usually when people don't actually want to give people of color an opportunity, they say there aren't enough talented, qualified candidates of color. Y'all have all heard that before, most recently, Well Fargo, but I digress. Now, again, that's nonsense 100% of the time. But I did want to talk about something that I thought about recently. When we look at the names of people who've already been appointed to key roles in the Biden administration, While many include incredibly talented black and brown friends, I see a lot of names and people that have been recycled from previous administrations. I value experience just as much as the next person. But I'd encourage my friends in the administration and folks outside of the administration that are working to get people into roles to look outside of the traditional D.C. sources for candidates. D.C. itself isn't diverse so it stands to reason that if we only look to traditional D.C. sources for candidates, we'll end up with the same people. When I consider a young mayor like Frank Scott to run transportation, we don't need a former senator to run DOJ. Look at former civil rights community for someone like Sherilyn Eiffel. Although, Doug Jones ain't half bad. Trust me, I'd rock with Doug. For EPA, let's look to an environmental activist like Heather Tony. For the Department of Agriculture, make John Boyd the heart and soul of Black farmers settlement with the department for years of discrimination against Black farmers, your new leader, if you won't appoint Marsha Fudge. Diversity is there when you look for. but when you try to impose old D.C. rules to every problem, you end up with the same faces and the same names. We can do better than that, and I hope this administration will. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. As always, this is Thursday. We'll see you on the next Monday. Y'all have a blessed weekend.